Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Quartz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. Well, wherever you are and however you've joined us, we are glad you're here today. We're in a series entitled The Battle, and we've said that conflict is a, an ongoing part of life for all of us. But for followers of Jesus, there is an additional, more serious kind of conflict that is a part of their day-to-day lives. We've seen that for followers of Jesus, this spiritual conflict that is theirs on top of the day-to-day conflicts is one that comes from one of three sources. It comes from the world around them. It comes from the devil who is beyond them. And it comes from the flesh that is within them. And just like all humanity, we've said that uh, believers were once enslaved to the world, to the flesh, and to the devil. They were once captured by them, but that this condition has for believers changed. Paul captures and describes this shift, this change when he says that God has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son that he loves. And it is this transfer that brought about the change in believers. But here's what believers discover soon after they've come to faith in Christ. And that is that the uh, masters that once enslaved them have become for them enemies that continue to attack them. The old masters who were defeated have now become their most determined foes. And so, for example, in the New Testament, we find James calling the world system an enemy of God that encircles believers. Jesus calls Satan the unseen enemy of his people, fighting them at every turn. Paul speaks of the passions of the flesh as warring against believers on the inside. So this transfer from one kingdom to another actually brings believers into a new, a different kind of conflict, into the cosmic battle that is being waged between darkness and evil and the light and the goodness of God. While these forces that once enslaved believers cannot dominate or control them any longer, here's the reality. They still have the power to deceive. They still have the power to harm God's people, and they do, and they will, especially when believers ignore their enemies or make little of their enemies or somehow encourage their enemies. But the good news is that believers aren't helpless before these determined foes. They have help. There are strategies that believers can use to overcome the enemies that they face. And that is a uh, fundamental part of this series. We are looking at the strategies 
that we need to overcome the enemies that we face. Now, today we return to look at the first enemy that believers face in the spiritual battle, and that is the world around them. And as we do, I want to remind you that when the Bible speaks of the world as an enemy, it's not speaking about the created world. It's not speaking about this earth on which we live. It isn't speaking about the people who live around us, but rather it's, it is speaking to human society as it is organized in hostility and opposition against God. It is hu human society uh, the human system organized without God. It, it's a, a system that values, uh, with values that deny that God is sovereign and says, in fact, that man is. It's a world with a system and with values that deny God's absolutes and insist that truth is ours to make up as we go along. It is a system with values that exalts pride and possessions and power and pleasure and makes them the point of life instead of God. And the world does all of this, we said the last time we were together, by offering us a beautiful set of lies about life and about how it really works. And so it is absolutely vital for believers to live their lives on guard against these beautiful lies. Why? Well, because they are beautiful, very attractive, seductive. They are everywhere in this world and they are in truth lies, which means they ultimately do us and do our families and do our churches and do our communities a great deal of harm. And so all of this taken together raises a, a fair question. How do you fight a beautiful lie? Living captive to beautiful lies, the beautiful lies that the world told us was uh, once part of every believer's past. Living under their influence can continue to be a painful part of, of the present if a believer doesn't know how to engage those beautiful lies, fight those beautiful lies, and ultimately win. Now, we're going to explore this matter one more time using 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And so I want to invite you to find your way there and join me, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Now, we've seen already that John has spent his time in his letter up to this point encouraging his readers, affirming their faith, and affirming God's faithfulness to them. But he turns, in verse 15, from encouraging them to warning them. And he says bluntly, and let's look at it together, he says, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions, all that is in the world is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with all of its desires. But whoever does the will of God that person 
John says, abides forever. Now, in these verses, John exposes three realities. He exposes a lie that we all believe, longings that we all share, and a love that we all need. A lie we all believe, longings we all share, and a love we all need. And as he does, he points us to the only methods for fighting the beautiful lies that we face in this world and winning. Previously, we saw together that the lie we all believe essentially is this, that the world system can do for us all that God can do and perhaps even more. Indeed, the world's greatest lie we saw is this, that all you need to live a complete and a satisfying life, to have purpose and to have meaning and security, the world tells us, I can give you, I can give it to you here and I can give it to you now. You're not really dependent on God and, and you're not really dependent on anyone else. If you have me, if you will follow me, you will have all you need. And with every billboard and every online commercial, with every magazine, every movie, every series, the world says to us fundamentally, I am life. I have all you need to make it good. And then, of course, from this one core beautiful lie come thousands of smaller ones tailored to whatever it is we want and need for life. And it's in this way that the world seeks to gain our attention by making this promise of life so that, and this is critical, it can gain our affection. The world seeks to get our attention so that it gains our affection. And that is why John says, do not love the world. Be very, very careful that your affection goes somewhere else, actually to someone else. He begins with this warning, do not love the world, which is important. If you look with me at verse 15a, he says that uh, believers have to be careful they can only give their affection to really their true affection, their full affection to one person or to one thing. And so he begins with this warning and he says, he doesn't say, hey, listen, you need to avoid the world. You need to retreat as if somehow you could. It's actually impossible. But what he says is while you're in this world system, be careful that you don't love it. Why? Because it is absolutely impossible to love and want the world, and to love and want God at the same time. Because the world is hostile to God by its very nature, and because God is hostile to the world by his very nature, love for one competes, drowns out, opposes love for the other. And so this means that believers must live again and again and again, choosing whom they will love, choosing to love the Father over loving the world. Now, after his warning against loving the world, John goes on and he shows us where our battle with the world actually takes place. It is in the deep longings that we all want to see fulfilled. Look with me at verse 16. 
John says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. Here's a second reason why, John says, you shouldn't live loving the world system and the things of the world. It has to do with these things that the world offers and where they actually come from. What the world offers is desires, but more properly, what the world offers is the fulfillment of desires. Let's look at each of them as John presents them and understand what they are and then see why uh, John says that they're not worth living for and they're not worth loving. Now, before we look at each of them, I want you to, to uh, see with me this. Uh, these things that are offered to us by the world, these, the, the satisfaction of certain longings is, is really critical. They're not things. They aren't homes. They aren't cars or possessions. They are indeed the longings, the satisfaction of longings that we have for needs and wants to be fulfilled. Now, it's important too as we go to look at these to notice that John doesn't condemn the longings. John is condemning the world's answer to the longings. The longings that we have, as we will see, all originate with God. They were given to us by God. But what the world does is it seeks to offer us an answer to our longings apart from God. And that's where the beauty of the lies, the world tells us, come in. Let's look at each of these together. First, John says that among the things of this world, uh, the first group of longings that the world offers to satisfy for us apart from God are, he says, the desires of the flesh. Now, these desires actually originate in our God-given longings for three things, for intimacy, for security, for sustenance. Every person seated around you, every person living next door to you and across the street from you, they share with you this longing for intimacy, security, and sustenance. It is the way God made us. But without God and left to ourselves in this world, we humans live our lives driven by the impulses or as someone has put it, the hankerings of our bodies. The drive for safety, for food, for clothing, for sex are met then by whatever means we find at hand. And so we human beings tend, we, we live to eat and we eat to live. We satisfy our need for sex with porn or with cheap relationships or with adultery, whatever it takes. Because the longings are real and their satisfaction is temporary when God isn't factored into the equation, they become incessant, they become consuming, and they become very frustrating longings. And this damages us and it defeats us. The desires of the flesh are the first group of longings that the world offers to meet for us but can't. There's a second group of longings that the world offers to satisfy for us apart from God, and those are the desires of the eyes. 
Now, these desires originate in our God-given need for fullness and for wholeness. Without God, and again, left to ourselves, we human beings live our lives driven by eyes, and this is a phenomenal picture, by eyes that are constantly scanning, constantly scanning the horizon for something or for someone who can give us and make us, critical, critical idea, can give us and make us more than what we are. We live, if you will, with itching eyes, longing to see what else may be outside of us that can fill the emptiness in us. We're always looking for something else on the outside to fill us up on the inside. The problem is that the outside can't ever supply what the inside lacks. I saw a study the other day that says the uh, American, the average American home today has tripled in size from 50 years ago. It is an evidence of this hunger, of this longing, of this lust of the eyes for more and more. The average American woman owns four times the uh, uh, amount of clothes that her grandmother owned. The American home, the average American home, uh, this astounded me, has the average American home has 300,000 items inside of it. And yet, and still, Amazon is making trips to our door day in and day out. More and more and more, the eyes, the desires of the eyes, always scanning, always looking. If I just had that, if I just had that thing, if I just had that person, if I could just add that to my life, then suddenly I would be more, I would uh, be full. The desires of the eyes. Notice the final group of longings that the world offers to satisfy for us apart from God. They come to us as pride and possessions. And this is our God-given need for value and significance that has been taken and is twisted by the world. This good desire to be valued, to, to live a life that matters, is twisted to become the arrogant pursuit of things and positions that prove we matter by the kind and the quality and the quantity of them. Possessing becomes, apart from God, a proof of our value. And as a result of that, we toil and we strive to acquire a place for ourselves among others and to acquire things for ourselves better than others or at least as good as others to prove to others that we're worthy of love, we're worthy of respect. This is that pride in possessions. And the world says, I'll give you, I'll supply all that you need. But again, it does not deliver on what it promises. It can't. Why? Because when God placed in us a longing for intimacy and security and sustenance, when he placed in us 
a longing for fullness and wholeness, when he placed in us a desire and need for value and significance, he was giving to us all of those desires so that we would find them satisfied ultimately in him. And because that is the way God has structured his universe and created and designed us, we have no real satisfaction until God and the good things that he gives are allowed to be the answers to our longings. See the danger for the believer in this scenario, in this battle over longings, lay in the fact that while the world offers solutions that are contrary to God's solutions, here's the deal. Now, don't miss this. The longings that they speak to are real. The longings that they speak to really do uh, address our need for flourishing, for wholeness, wellness, fullness, all of those things. And because the things of this world, the promises that it makes, do acknowledge these genuine God-given longings of our hearts, they can easily seem to be God's answer to our longings or to be as good as anything that God might offer to satisfy us. And it's right here where the world's beautiful lies defeat us again and again. It is in the way that they offer the good God has while delivering something else. It is the original bait and switch. We can give you, I can give you, the world says, the system says. I can give you everything God offers and more. And when we take the bait, what we get is something far, far less. So what makes every beautiful lie powerful is the way it mixes a great truth with a great deception. There's something critical here that every believer needs to, to understand and every believer needs to remember in their fight with the world. Listen carefully, it is this. The battle with the world is always a battle with great lies that include great truth and speak directly to our real longings. And it is separating the truth of our longings from the lie of how they can be satisfied that is what believers can do and what believers must do to guard against the beautiful lies that the world tells us. Our battle with the world is always with great lies that include a mixture of the great truth about our very real longings. And your call and mine, your strategy, if you're a follower of Jesus and mine, must be to separate the lie of how those longings can be satisfied from the truth that those longings are real and ultimately 
to acknowledge and recognize that those longings are only satisfied by God himself in Christ Jesus. So these longings for more that we have, they're legitimate. They are evidence for our longing for God. Every time you feel emptiness, every time you feel insecurity, every time you feel the need for value, every time you feel the need for worth, what you are getting is a sign. What you're getting is an indication. What you're getting is an evidence of your simple human need for more, more of the God who made you. The longing for more is right, good, true. But the more we're longing for is the God who is himself both satisfying and infinite. What you need and what I need, God is. And this prepares us for a final truth that John exposes for us. If believers aren't to love the world, the things of this world, and the beautiful lies that it tells, and if they're going to win in this fight, they've got to remember this. They've got to understand this, that the right kind of love is ultimately what defeats the most beautiful of lies. Look with me to John 17 as John directs us to uh, one final lesson. He shows us that in the place of love for the world and the things of this world, there is one love that we all need to nurture. Verse 17 says, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God, that person abides forever. Here, John offers a final reason that believers shouldn't love the world system. He says that the world and its twisted solutions for our longings, they don't last. They're all passing away. Indeed, the world and all it offers are already passing away. So the world system, John says, passes away. It's already passing away. And that is in contrast to those who do the will of God. They have a future. Indeed, they abide or they live forever. In other words, this world will pass, but God's obedient people, John says, they will last. Now, John says more here than we might see at first, and I don't want you to miss this. Jesus had already defined for John and for his disciples who the truly obedient are. For example, in John 14, in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 15 and 16, Jesus says, frankly, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. In John 14, 24, he goes on to say, whoever doesn't love me doesn't keep my words. And then 
to show that love for him is also love for the Father. He says, and the word that I speak to you, the word that you hear, the word that I call you to obey is, is in, the, in, the or, in its deepest origin, not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So those who really love me and love the Father are those who obey me and obey the Father. Real love wholeheartedly obeys. Real love for the Father wholeheartedly obeys him in a world that doesn't. And so when you read verse 17 with this in view, what you hear is, is uh, John's message uh, rendered more clearly. John's logic is this, because there is no future for the world, there is no future in the world's solutions. To live loving the temporary, to live loving the world and its solutions, John is telling us is a fool's errand. It is a waste of life. It is especially a waste of, of a life redeemed from the power of the world and from its lies. For a believer, loved ones, to live somehow trying to love the world and love the Father, to do the impossible, to try to pursue Jesus and try to pursue wealth, to try to pursue Jesus and try to pursue, pursue beauty, to try to pursue Jesus and try to pursue position or peace or, or a happy family or whatever it is, to try to pursue Jesus and to pursue anything else is a waste of the life you've been given. He set you and he set me free from the pursuit of all these things so that we could be free to pursue him and find everything we need in him. For a believer to try to live loving the world and believing its lies while loving God and believing his truth is, as Peter puts it, like a dog returning to his own vomit. And yet, sadly, that is what we do again and again and again when we don't take the enemy that is the world system around us, when we don't take it seriously, when we make a little of it, or when we encourage it by flirting with and testing out its beautiful lives. To live loving the temporary is a fool's errand. It is a waste of life. But to live loving God and to live loving the things of God is the ultimate life's investment. He lasts his promises last. And John says, those who love him live. Now, I want you to see with me that this final statement actually does two things for us. First, it shows us what genuine love for God looks like in a world that seeks to earn our affection with beautiful lies. And John teaches us that genuine love for God in this world with all of its beautiful lies and great temptations, it looks like obedience. Because God loved us first, we're able to love him. And when we truly love him, who loved us first, what 
he wants most is what we come to want most. And this is why those who love God obey him. Those who love God and love to do his will and please him are those who find themselves most deeply satisfied. But this does a second thing for us as well. It sets us up to see, secondly, just how it is the beautiful lies are ultimately, finally defeated. I don't want you to miss this. The only effective human uh, alternative to loving the world that we have around us is a wholehearted love for the God who is for us. Those faithful, obedient believers who understand this, they set their hearts, they make it their life's ambition to love God consistently with all that they have and all that they are. They work very hard in the course of their lives to replace the ideas and the images of life that the world offers them intentionally with the ideas and the images of the God of life that they find that Jesus gives them. And so this is how they really fight. They fight love for the world with a love for God. And because the love of the world and the love of this God can't coexist and because a love of the world and its things can't satisfy completely and because a love of a passing world and its things is a waste of life and because love of the Father, the things he gives ultimately satisfies completely and forever. Believers choose as a way of winning in this spiritual battle to nurture and to keep nurturing, to cultivate and to keep cultivating a living, vibrant love for God in Christ. How do you fight a beautiful lie and win? You fight a beautiful lie and win with love, with love for the Father who in Christ is more beautiful than any lie the world can tell. Let me give you some ways that you can apply all of this practically. If you are a follower of Jesus, there are at least three things you can do to fight and win over the world's beautiful lies, practically speaking. Number one, I want to challenge you to give careful attention to your affections to those things that you love. You can always know what you're loving by what you're living to acquire. You can always know what you're loving by what you're hoping for, by what you're looking for, by what you're longing for. What you love, you will always live for. The ultimate statistic of life is this, one out of every person die, uh, one out of every one person dies. One out of every one person has one chance to live, and one out of one lives pursuing the one thing he or she really loves. 
And this is true even for you as a believer. And I want to remind you that your love for Christ can slip. Your love for Christ can be lost. And when it is lost, it is always lost to lesser love. So watch yourself carefully. Pay attention to what you're living for. Pay attention to what you would die over if you were to lose it. This will show you what you truly love. And if it isn't the Father, if it isn't among the things of the Father, then you will know you have fallen prey yet again to one of the world's beautiful lies. There's a second thing you can do, and that is to accept the fact that you must choose again and again and again to love God by loving Christ. It is never for you and me, ever for you and me, a once and done experience, ever. We must choose him and choose him and choose him and choose him, saying to Christ again and again, because you chose me, I, cho I choose you. Thirdly and finally, you can learn that the choice of what you love is driven always by the focus you keep. We all live and we all suffer or we all benefit from target fixation. What we live looking at, we actually live our lives heading for. So watch your eyes, the eyes of your mind, the eyes of your heart, the eyes in your head. What you're focused on, you'll eventually give your affection to. And when God in Christ becomes the focus of your mind, it is then that he will become the love of your heart. Here is the battle you and I face. It is a battle with beautiful lies. The solution is a far more beautiful truth that the God who made you and me and everything we see has committed himself with all that he is to loving us, to being the one who meets all of our needs. And the good news is he does. When in answer to his love for us, we turn our attention and our affections to him, and with our eyes fixed on his Christ, when we live directed toward him, we find the life that he gives. Everything else is a beautiful lie. Father, would you take your word and would you seal it upon our hearts and our minds? Lord God, would you make us careful to manage and to watch our affections, to be sensitive to and aware of where it is our minds and our hearts, eyes are fixed and focused. 
Would you, Father God, I pray, keep us ever mindful of the height and depth, length and breadth of your love for us. It would have been so much easier for you to have made a new humanity and discarded us. But instead of making new friends, you paid the ultimate price to restore us again to friendship with you. And that simple fact of the work of Christ and all that it accomplished there on the cross, that is enough, Lord God, to cause us to love you and to choose to love you again and again and again, no matter what this world offers. Find us faithful in it, I pray. For Jesus' sake, we choose you. Amen. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.